If you've been around our church or if today is your first day here, um, we are right smack in the middle of this series called Summer in the Scriptures, and we're doing a survey of the whole Bible, start to the end. And uh, and it's actually kind of nice, because if you ever said, I'm going to read through the whole Bible, and you kind of read, you get Genesis, like, oh, there's some good stuff there, and then there's some weird incest stuff, and then there's like death and destruction, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're done. Um, this way, we've just picked the best parts to kind of give you the best picture to get through the whole Bible in one summer. And um, we've looked at the Torah, which is the first five books, and the historical books, and some poetry. And this today, we're going to look at the prophets. And then next Sunday, we'll turn the corner and spend some time in the New Testament. So this morning, we are going to look at the prophets, and it's going to be really fun. Well, fun is probably too, too, too bold of a statement. But grab your Bible. Um, you're going to need it this morning. And if you don't have one, grab one from inside, uh, from the, the seat right in front of you. And um, we're going to take a look at the, the prophets. So in your Bible, uh, kind of open it up halfway. And usually somewhere in there, you're going to find Psalms and Proverbs or Isaiah. If you open the Bible right in half, that's kind of where you're going to land. And you want to find the beginning of Isaiah. And that is the first of the book of the prophets. And it goes all the way until Matthew, to the beginning of the New Testament. So it's, this, it's the last chunk of the Old Testament that we're talking about today, the prophets. And that's where we're going to spend our time. And the prophets, if you think about it, how they're broken up, these are, these, in our Bible, they're, they're chapters in the Bible, but they were scrolls, and they were scrolls by prophets for the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And uh, they're broken up into two main sections. There's the major prophets and the minor prophets. And uh, there's the only distinction between them is the major prophets had more words. So like if in our church, Art would be a major prophet, and I would be like a minor prophet. So the content may be the same, but the amount of words is what makes them major or minor, okay? So the major prophets start in the beginning. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. They're these gigantic books. There's a lot to them. I always get lost. Whenever I try to read through the Bible, I get distracted and I start skimming right about there. Those are the major prophets. And then the minor prophets right after that, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, um, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and the one Italian project, uh, prophet Malachi. And those make up the prophets. That's the whole, that's, and that's what we're talking about this morning. And, um, and if you've read, if you're with the uh, reading through our Bible plan, or if you've ever read through the prophets, I think it's the hardest section of all of Scripture. Everyone says, oh, Leviticus. No, Leviticus is a walk in the park compared to the prophets. I think they are a very hard section, and especially the way that we get them. There's no rhyme or reason. They're not put in alphabetical order, chronological order, importance order. They're just, I mean, the people who put them there had importance for them, but for us in the 21st century in America, it makes no sense for us. And if you just read through it, it is really, really challenging. Well, as I was studying uh, this for this sermon and preparing, I could not stop thinking about one of my old youth group students. His name's Bobby Vagoda. And Bobby Vagoda actually is a homeless kid uh, in Berkeley or San Francisco or who knows where he is. And he's not even a kid anymore. He's probably 30, 31-ish. And, uh, whenever, uh, and every now and then when I walk through Berkeley or I walk through the city and I see a homeless person, I kind of have this, this glimmer where I'm like, I wonder if that's Bobby. And I kind of see him for a second, then he's not, and then I kind of go on my way. But what's interesting, when I think about the prophets, I think about my friend Bobby. And, uh, and he's been off the grid for 10 whole years. And um, what's amazing is Bobby Vigoda, even though he's a homeless kid on the grid right, right now, he didn't start out that way, right? He was the first son of the Vigoda family. Ken Vigoda's first son was Bobby. 
And uh, Ken is this incredible guy. He's a winemaker in Napa, plays bass, is this awesome musician. And then him and his wife had this son, Bobby, and his baby pictures are, could not be more precious. And if any of you had a family or you've seen a nephew or niece and you see a little baby, you're like, oh, this is my baby. And especially, this is my firstborn son. And he's so precious and so beautiful. And, um, and as he grew, he actually took on kind of the family trait. Like he became a musician himself and became an incredible musician. I met him in seventh grade as, a, as his youth director. And uh, he was just this lanky, goofy middle school kid. He could eat. Uh, he spent the most money on concessions I've ever been to a baseball game. He dropped a hundred bucks on concession, ate at everything for the whole baseball game, every inning. I, I was like, how does that even happen? What are you doing with a hundred bucks at a baseball game anyway? And uh, that, he was just this incredible, incredible kid. Anyway, so through high school, he ends up becoming a really proficient musician, incredible, in, in the honor jazz band, um, honor bands all the way through, and ends up going to Berkeley as a student. And uh, as a, I mean, can you even imagine your kid, you know, the kid that you raised, taking on the things that you love, and you launch them into the world, and uh, somewhere in his freshman year in college, the wheels just kind of came off. And um, no one even really knows exactly what happened, but he just kind of started drifting, gotten messed up, some messed up stuff, took on, enjoyed his rebellion and freedom, um, got addicted to some things, and, and now he's off the rails. And I think about that because I think of my friends Ken and Lori, and as parents, what do you do when your son goes off the rails? What do you do when your kid is just, he's out there, right? And as a parent, you kind of vacillate between you want to show tough love. Do I cut them off? We're not going to pay for college. We're not going to pay for your rent. If you're going to make those dumb choices, and you're going to go and do those dumb choices, and you cut them off, and, and you're going to realize the world is really hard, and you're going to watch your kid get crushed, but you've got to do tough love, right? But as a parent, you only can do tough love for so long, and at some point you're like, you know, you get a phone call a couple Christmases later, and all of a sudden you're like, you want to reconnect, come back, I don't care, whatever's happened, has happened, come back home, be a part of Christmas, and they come back to Christmas, and then they wreck shop at your Christmas because they're so selfish and jerky, and you're like, that's it, you're done, and you cut them off, right? And there's this back and forth vacillating between tough love and grace and tough love and grace. And when I think of the prophets, and if I thought, how in the world do you sum up the prophets? I really, I think that's what it is. The people of Israel were my friend Bobby Vigoda. And out of some of their dumb choices and rebellion and some life circumstances, they have found themselves very far from God. And God simply used the prophets as his letter to his people trying to get their attention. The whole prophets is that simple cry of a father's heart to say, listen, you're doing dumb stuff. You keep that up, you are going to be crushed. Your life is going to be just destroyed. Come back to me. Come back to me and I'll make it right. Oh, you're really going to be in trouble. You're really going to be in trouble. Come back to me, I'm going to make it right. And that's the whole arc of the prophets. So this morning, we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. In order to understand where these prophets fit, it helps, I think, to understand where we are in the history of Israel. So all the prophets happened between 800 and 500 uh, BC, right, right in there. And uh, what happened is, and you think of like the, the, the story of God, the people of God, think of it even as my friend Bobby Vigoda, right, that you, the people of Israel in the Torah, they were, he was born. The people of God were born of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the Torah, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land, and it's like this birth of this nation of God's people who are going to have these commandments, who are going to live a certain way and be a blessing to all nations. This is who God's people were going to be, and it was like all the hopes of a child, like, this is it. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. This is going to be great, and then, uh, and then adolescence happened, and high school happens, and, and you know, you can pick and choose different stories, and you can find all sorts of dramatic chaos, just like we could in all of our high school experiences, but the, the pinnacle of the Israel story is King David. And King David shows up. He has this gigantic kingdom. They're the people of God. They're the mature people of God. And they're, they're just taking over all this land. It's the high point of that kingdom. 
Well, King David, who's super dysfunctional and, and, uh, and a mess, has a son, Solomon, super dysfunctional and a mess. Who has a son? Rehoboam, Rehoboam who's a dysfunctional and a mess. And just like all families, you get three generations of dysfunction, and you are going to cause death and destruction in your family. And that's exactly what happened in Israel. Israel was this one kingdom under, under David, and then under Solomon, and under Rehoboam. Um, think of it this way. There's um, all the northern kingdoms were kind of one group of people, and all the southern kingdoms were another people. And Rehoboam just crushed the northern kingdom. He said, you know what? You need to serve me. You need to pay more taxes. And he was a big jerk to them. And all the northern people were like, peace out. We're done with you. And the kingdom was divided. This is super ancient history. It doesn't even matter, but it's going to matter in a second, okay? So just bear with me. So here we are, the kingdom of Israel in the north, kingdom of Judah below. And this is where the prophets show up. And at this point, the, the kings and kingdoms have gone off the rails. For the most part, they've started following false gods or worshiping false gods. The, they're, you know, they're crushing the poor and the foreigners among them, and they are just being everything that God did not want them to be, their hope to be. And so all of a sudden, as, as these two nations are, 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 you can go back one side, as these two nations are getting farther and farther from God, uh, there's this Assyrian empire that's brewing to the north, and they're getting bigger, and they're getting stronger, and they're starting to threaten the northern kingdom. And that's where Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of these prophets show up on the scene. They're like, listen, you've turned so far from God. You've turned so far from God. You need to come back to him. If not, then my discipline is going to come to you in the form of the Assyrians, and they are going to wreck shop on you. Turn back. And they're like, oh, whatever, you're just an old prophet. You're dumb. Just like right punk kid. They don't know. And so sure enough, the Assyrians come in, and they crush, and they wipe out the northern kingdom. Well, as this is happening, all the people in Judah are like, oh my gosh, we're going to be toast. We've got to repent because the, the Syrians are going to come and crush them. Well, sure enough, they actually repent, and uh, the Syrians, they relent. But they relent because of even a bigger, badder empire. The Babylonians show up on the scene. They crush the Assyrians. Then they crush the northern kingdom, and then they're about to crush Judea. And uh, the prophet's like, repent, turn away, follow me. I will protect you. Repent. And if you don't, you're going to be crushed. And sure enough, uh, the Assyrians come, I mean, the Babylonians come in and crush Judah. And they send them off to captivity. And then um, 80 years later, so they come back from captivity and start all over again. So that, all that dramatic war and chaos is where the prophets are. If you're not already intrigued, I know. It's like why no one ever reads them. It's really hard. But, so this is what we're going to try to understand today, is what in the world do we make sense of all this? And so we're going to look at one prophet to kind of, as I think sums up best, what is going on with the prophet. So in your Bible, if you turn to Joel, which is on page 839 in your Bible, and, uh, and Joel 2 is one of the, the passages that we read this week. And it's interesting, in this one chapter, we get kind of the full prophetic arc. And uh, so we're just going to walk through this chapter of Scripture together. So here we have Joel, who's a prophet of Judah, right? Israel's already been wiped out. Now the Babylonians are on their border, about to crush them. And Joel stands up to the people of Israel in his robe and his voice, and this is what he proclaims. Blow the trumpets in Zion. Sound the alarm of my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Now we think the day of the Lord is coming. We go, Hosanna, the day of the Lord. Oh, like in Christendom, it sounds all great, like Jesus and Christmas. But the day of the Lord for these guys was no joke. This was death and destruction. This was the judgment hand of God coming. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army is coming, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. I mean, it's this word of warning. And in all the prophets, there's this, the very first thing almost all the prophets say is this word of imminent doom. 
prophetic, I mean, and prophets all throughout history have gotten a bad name because it's this prophetic doom. And we have that in our culture. I mean, like, oh, the national debt or the environment or whatever. Like, have, there's all these like, people going, we're in big trouble, we're in big trouble. But we're like, hey, man, I'm going to meet Pub for lunch. My life's great. Right? We have no idea about the bigger picture. And so we all get along with our life. And it's so easy to judge these guys because we don't get them. But we do the same thing. Impending doom is impending. My life right now is awesome. But an impending doom is coming, and Joel is trying to get his people's attention. Please relent. The Babylonians are no joke. They're like locusts. How locusts come and destroy your fields, the army is going to be like a locust and just going to wipe you out. So there's this warning of impending doom, but, but God's heart is not this crusher of souls. He's a father who desperately wants his kids to come back. And you see in verse 12, he goes on, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents, and he relents from sending calamity. I just love this picture of God. I mean, God in the Old Testament gets such a bad rap, but all over, God's heart is for his people to return to him. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And from this far away from history, it's easy to look back, and I always think, so if the people would have re- repented, would the Babylonians never have crushed them? Like, how does that all work? And, and I have no idea. But all how the story of Scripture and the people who have been following God for centuries believe that God's fingers and handiwork is in all of the history, of all of creation, in all of geopolitics, not just in my world, in my moment, but in all of those things. And so how and why that all works, I don't fully get. But the overwhelming story of Scripture is that God's involved in all that, that the difficult things that do happen are simply to help people return back to Him, and He longs for His people to repent. And what's amazing in the story of God all the time is when people repent, God never is the angry dad who goes, oh, now that you repent, now you need to pay me back for the two semesters of college that you blew. He's not that kind of dad. Most of you aren't that kind of dad. When, When your son or your daughter repents, when they come back, you embrace them, right? For we are slow, for we are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So the arc of these prophets, right, is that there's this warning of impending doom. And then there's this call for repentance it's going to happen. You need to turn. You need to come back to God. And then there's this hope, because what happens is all, every story of Scripture, no one repents, no one relents. And so this impending doom comes, and it wipes out the people of God. And then they find these people in mourning. Their life, their lifestyle. Like right now, we're all li- li- life's all great. Right? 20 years from now, when like who knows what the world's going to look like, and we're all in, our lives are in death and destruction. We cry, God, where are you? What's going on? Well, then the prophet offers this, another, this other part of his job, which is to offer hope and this coming hope of restoration. And we see it in verse 18. So then the Lord was jealous for his people and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it to the parched and barren land. What's amazing is this was their hope. And, and oppressed people groups, people all over the world who are oppressed and are in dire, dire straits, the, the prophets are such good news. For us, we're like the oppressors and we're like, oh man, this is bad news for us. But, but for the oppressed, there's such good news because there's this hope of restoration, the awful things that you're experiencing, this dry season that you're going through, the challenges that you are in this moment, there's this hope of restoration. 
Now, the books of the prophets, there are, these, there, there are these moments in time. They're not written to you, right? This isn't like, okay, this, this passage is for you. I mean, it's not to you. It's for you. And it helps inform who God is and what he's about. But this was a, a prophecy for Israel, I mean, for Judah, when their land was going to be restored. So this ark, right, is there, there's this warning of impending doom, a call to repentance, and this hope of restoration. But where it's good news for us is that this hope of restoration isn't just for the people of Judah in this one moment and one time, but there's this hope of full restoration for all people all over the world. So the end of chapter 2 says this, And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even, um, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Excuse me, in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And what's incredible about this passage of scripture is the ultimate restoration is this idea that God at some point is going to come and make all the wrongs right. He's going to pour out his spirit and the people of God are going to be a part of making all the wrongs right. And later, when Jesus shows up on the scene, right, he lives, he proclaims, he's a prophet in the truest sense because he proclaims who God is and the character of God. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right, that Jesus is the truest prophetic voice because he's the truest image of who God is in his heart for people. And he proclaims uh, good news to the poor. He lives a life. He teaches great things. He ultimately dies on the cross for our sins and, uh, and then goes to heaven. Well, there's this period in time before he goes to heaven, before the Holy Spirit comes, where the disciples are all hanging around. And uh, 40 days later, uh, the church celebrates this Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes down on his disciples, and there's this huge revival, and the disciples are filled with spirit, filled with power, and they go out to the whole world. Well, the author of Acts looks back to Joel and says, this thing that Joel was saying, that came true today. Today, the Spirit of God was descended on all people, on men, on women, on rich and poor, so that the kingdom of God could be established. So that is the hope of the whole prophetic story. That's, if you summed it all up, I think that's a way to, to put it into, into a, a place for us to understand. I think what's, what's hard, though, is even though the prophets and the book of the prophets are for this moment in time, there's this tradition, the kind of the best of the church tradition, that we believe that God is still alive, that he's still active, that God still has a prophetic voice for the church and for the world. Um, in some traditions, that's the pastor or the priest. Uh, in some traditions, it's the priesthood of all believers who share that prophetic voice. Um, and so this morning, we're going to take a crack at it. How fun is that? I know. So if, when you look through all the prophets, there are basically three different prophets that I think— it, uh, are good examples of the prophetic voice that God is inviting his people to hear. So one, it's like the three little bears. Uh, you know, one is going to be really awful, uh, one's going to be less awful, and one will be encouraging. Does that sound good? You got five minutes in you for the awful one? What are you going to do? It's church. Like, you're just going to get up and leave? You can't. I know. So, okay, so here we go. Let's, let's look at uh, prophet number one. The prophet number one where that I think is a, is a type that God calls his people to be is the prophet Micah. And uh, Micah, is, his job was to rebuke the people of God. All right, ready for this? So good. I've been nervous all day about this. So we think of Micah. What was Micah's job? He was the prophet of God, and his overarching thing, he just laid into and rebuked the people of God. The people of God were living great lives. They were fat and wealthy and loved God and went to temple worship, and life was perfect for them. 
Except the problem was they were fat and wealthy and loving life on the backs of the foreigners, and, the, and they, they were dishonest in how they traded with their scales. And, they, like, all, like, and God says, listen, you were a foreigner. You were slaves, and I brought you back, and you forgot. You forgot that you were the other. You forgot that you were the outsider. And, um, and so you come to worship, and you raise your hands, and you give your money, and like, you're like good Christian people, or you're, you're good Jewish people at that time, but you have missed it. You've missed the mark of what God truly has for us. So I'm like, okay, God, if you were Micah, not me, but if you were Micah, and Micah showed up and said, hey, Mern, come to church. You guys love, you're so beautiful. You come to church and you raise your hands and worship and you put money in here and life is super great. But what would be the word that God would have for us if, if Micah was that prophetic voice for us? And I was really wrestling with it. And, uh, and I thought, like, it's, it's interesting because the word that came coming to my mind is that we are such a self-righteous people. And it's funny because we are not the self-righteous people of our parents. Those guys were self-righteous. Don't drink, don't play cards, don't watch movies. Those guys were self-righteous. They always judge you on us, right? So, but we still are self-righteous, right? I mean, all the dramatic things that happen in our country every day, and you see these people on Facebook, and they, they say, hey, I think this, or they post some, some blog or something, you're like, what an idiot, you know? And you kind of separate from this person who's like trying to share their thing, and you just immediately are so much smarter and better than them and, uh, because they are this thing, and you just stand back and you can judge them. And plus, it's on Facebook. You don't have to look at them in the face, and it's super easy and fun to judge them. And I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. So there we go. We're, we're judgy towards them. But then we have this weird thing where we don't, um, but we don't really judge each other. We're not really to, to, to do the hard work of interacting and engaging with each other. Jesus says, hey, don't take the log out of your own eye until you take the speck out of your own eye, right? But we love that the speck is in our own eye. We love that there's something in our eye. Because if there's something in my eye and I don't have to deal with it, then the truth is I'm not going to deal with the speck in your eye. And we kind of have this like unwritten rule. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. Jesus loves us. Life's all good. But what if God actually had something more for us than just to be satisfied with the speck in our eye? And to realize that we are self-righteous, A, the way we judge people who aren't like us, politically, economically, religiously, or we're self-righteous in that we love our freedoms so much. And in fact, if anyone impacts and impedes on our freedoms, we're judgy towards them. But what would happen if we were willing to say, Jesus, take the speck out of my own eye? And what if I saw the way that you saw? Because the truth is, you were all foreigners. You were all broken, sinful people. Your lives were all in shambles at one point. And by the goodness of Jesus Christ, he came in and rescued you and healed you and cleaned you up enough so that you can be respectable in church. But there are people around us who are unseen, who don't know that, who don't know that their un- unclean, uncleanliness is, is acceptable for us because we're clean enough. And so we judge them. We keep them to the, the sides. And we don't do it like our parents did. We're not judgy towards them. We're not like, oh, you, you, what, what are you wearing on your shirt? Or, oh, you have a tattoo. Or, like, we're not judgy like that. We're even worse judgy like that. What we do is we don't even see them, right? I have my one friend, I have my two friends, and I go out to lunch with my one or two friends, and you guys are kind of like a backdrop to my life, right? And then I get my two friends and I do my, do my thing, which is even worse. If we were at least judgy like our parents, we'd at least see people and judge them. I think what God is inviting us to do is to see people, to see the foreigner among us, to see the person who's struggling spiritually among us, to see those people in and around our world and in and around our church who need to be treated like humans. For we were once foreigners and we were once broken, but Jesus saved us. All right, so that's what I think of Micah was saying to me. Maybe that's to you too, but that's what I've been wrestling with all week. So Micah, what is Micah's job? He's rebuking the people of God. There's your rebuke. Sorry about that. Okay, next up is Hosea. So never pray this prayer. 
God, make me more humble. Okay, that's one of those prayers you never want to pray. In the same way, never pray this prayer. God, I just want to know what your heart is for the world or for people. Never pray that prayer either because poor Hosea prayed that prayer and uh, he got his butt handed to him. This is what God said to him. He has this prayer with God. God, I want to know your heart for the people. God says, great. Hosea chapter one, verse two says this. Well, then go and marry a promiscuous woman, have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. That's a good word right there. So we think of what's the prophetic voice. You have the rebuke. You have the prophet who puts on his robe and points his finger and says, you need to shape up. The other prophetic voice that I think God invites the church is to put on the, to put on the mantle of Hosea. And what does Hosea do? Hosea takes on the love and the heartache of God. Instead of just standing going, Israel, you are so dumb. You are an adulterous people and you're going to be cut off and you're, I'm, going to, I'm done with you. Instead, the heart of God is to model what that what that um, pain looks like, to marry an adulterous woman, to have kids with her, to watch her continue to be adulterous even after he's married, after she comes back, and, uh, and to continue to watch his heartache over and over again. Think of the shame that, I, that Hosea must have felt. He wanted to be close to God, wanted to know the heart of God, wanted to proclaim God's heart for the people, and instead he just gets shame and ridicule. But what an incredible picture it was for the people of Israel to go, that's what we're doing. When we go out and follow these false gods, when we're self-righteous, when we crush the foreigner, when we do all these things, it looks like this. Because God's invisible and we can't really see him. But every now and then, people take on the heart of God. They take on the mantle of the prophet Hosea. And all of a sudden, people get to see and feel and touch what God actually has for his people. And I think for us as in the church, when we want to be prophets, I think we think, oh, we're going to judge people and we're going to lay down our finger. And sometimes we need that, but that has to be in relationship and in friendship and with love and respect. But even more so, so, if we want to be prophetic, we have to take on the mantle of Hosea. And when people do that, when people in our culture put on the mantle of Hosea, it messes people up, right? You look at, I mean, the forever shootings and the forever death and destruction that's happening around us. And every time that happens, they think, man, someone needs to find that guy and kill him. Oh, he killed himself. Put him, bring him back to life and kill him. Like that just, I, it just drives me crazy. There needs to be justice. It gets so mad. And there's these calls and people who hate the death penalty also are like, we, I am for the death penalty when something like that happens. Because that's right and that's noble and that's just. But every now and then you get these pictures of the people of God who have these awful things happen to them and they behave in such a way that no one knows what to do with it. And when the, when the massacre happened in Charleston at the black church and, uh, and you just think, that Dylan Roof, that guy needs to be hung from the tree and then brought back to life and hung from the tree again. That's what justice is and he, that's what I would want. But all of a sudden these wise and deep Christians put on the mantle of Hosea and they forgave him. And I'm like, that is impossible. And the whole world's like, what are you doing? It's like 10 years ago, the same thing happened in the Amish community and they forgave him. And it, the whole world goes, what are you doing? Because no one experiences that kind of forgiveness. People were mesmerized at the memorial service. I mean, that was the most mesmerizing Christian worship experience of all time that the whole world encountered because someone, because they put on the mantle of Hosea. So when, we, when we're this prophetic voice, it is gonna cost us. And it is gonna cost us deeply. If we are gonna forgive the way that people forgive. There's marriages who are in big time trouble and hearts that have gone so far apart. And if you're going to forgive your spouse to come back together, that is big time forgiveness. And it is noble. And it is the picture of God. Um, another thing that we do is when we think about mercy. It's two of my heroes. I could never be like them, but I like looking back at them. It's Mother Teresa and Henry Nouwen. I think Mother Teresa and Henry Nouwen, oh, they're so incredible. And if they came to church, we'd love to take them out to meet Pueblo and have a great time with them. But the truth is, 
I would actually never want to be close to them because they would cause such discomfort in me. Mother Teresa used every part of her capital, everything about who she was, and gave it to the poorest of Calcutta. Henry Nouwen, this brilliant professor, gave up the esteem of being a professor to go and serve developmentally disabled people. And they're mesmerizing. They're not the Christians who try to gain a platform and make a bigger church and have a, a, you know, a nicer car and a bigger deal and a bigger kingdom and a, go multi-site. Like, they weren't, like, nothing wrong with all that, but th- they weren't those guys. They were the people who served and offered mercy, and the world is mesmerized by them. I think of the Hoys who have baby Elijah. They get to be our little Hosea. Who's, who would baby Elijah be without the Hoys? Who would baby Elijah be without us getting to watch the Hoys do that and touch him here and there? Right? Because they are Hosea in our midst. They are the prophetic voice in our midst. And lastly, when we, when we do that, we, like, we need to stand up for the poor and the oppressed. We love partnering with International Justice Mission because they are getting after it in all parts of the world, stopping sex trafficking. And they are, we give money to them and they are killing it. And we should. And that's really big and noble. But I was super blown away by some of our high school students. One, there's a girl um, among, our, among our kids who was kind of being alienated and isolated. And she gave up some of her cool political capital to grab that girl, to see her, and to bring her into their friendship circle. Right? Standing up for justice. Being Hosea is not just big Mother Teresa things or international justice things. It's these small little things where we forgive, where we show mercy, and we show justice. So we want to rebuke the people of God. No fun. We want to be Hosea. Uh, take on the mantle of God, and we do. We are such good news to the church and to the world. And lastly, we want to be like Isaiah, Isaiah, who proclaims the coming of our Savior. Isaiah chapter 42, this is one of the passages we read this week as well, says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, and he will not falter to be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth, and in his teachings the islands will, be put, will put their hope. I love this passage, and, and Isaiah is an incredible prophet, and you have to wade through a lot of really weird stuff, but all sprinkled through Isaiah is this proclamation that the Savior is coming, that the King is coming and is going to make all wrongs right. And we miss it because we want Jesus to come and make all of our wrongs right by crushing those around us and giving us good, good things and blessing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's just the, the way we're wired. But the way in which Jesus did it is unlike anything the world has ever known. Jesus came as the true prophet of God. He came to rebuke the Pharisees. I mean, the only people he called to the mat were the religious people who thought they had their life all together, who loved their little clique of friends, and life was perfect. And he laid it on thick for them. He rebuked them. Repent, for the day of the Lord is coming. Turn from your sin and come and follow me. But even more so, he took on the mantle of Hosea. And he modeled God's love and his grace all the way to death on the cross. He modeled God's love and his grace. And now he's given us the task to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the whole world. And we think for us, we need to be pointing our finger at the world and laying it on thick for them, and letting them know they, they need to repent and turn from their ways. We can't even do that in the church, so why are we even trying to do that to the people outside of the church? But what the church desperately needs to know is that our king is coming to make all wrongs right. That there's a healer who's going to heal the broken. There's a savior for the whole world. 
out there, there's Bobby Vigoda on the streets doing who knows what. He is somebody's son. She is somebody's daughter. And they are totally wayward. And they may be fully dramatic, like the homeless guy that you see on the street or the person selling poems um, at the bus stop. Or it could be just internally, people in this room who are so wrecked, who are so far from God, who are in such disarray, but we put on a good, clean face because we're at church. The prophetic word that we have is that a Savior is coming. And our job as the people of God is to be prophets for the world, to see people, not just our friends, to see the fringes, to not just walk past people and blow past them, but to see them, to care for them, to recognize that they are somebody's story. Somebody desperately is heartbroken because of where they are at right now. Or even more heartbreaking is maybe no one is heartbroken for them. My wife has these things every now and then. There's certain kids who end up in our youth ministry and whose parents are totally off the rails and super far away. And she's all soft-hearted because she's like, no one is praying for this kid. This kid who's been coming to a youth group whose parents are off the rails or not even part of the scene, at least for like some people, like at least your mom or dad loves you, but no one sees this kid. We have, we are standing in the gap. We have to see this kid. We have to love this kid. We have to pray for this kid because no one sees them. What a good news that we would be for the church if we took on the true prophetic role to hold each other accountable, to take on the mantle of forgiveness and mercy and justice and proclaim good news to all people who desperately need it. Let me pray for us and then we'll wrap it up. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, at least for me, I... I can admit I don't like the prophets because I see too many hard things for me in it. And I put it aside because it's just weird, but if I'm honest, there's too many hard things for me in it. So I pray for me and for my friends, God, that we would be quick to ask for forgiveness. We'd be quick to ask for help, to take the speck and logs out of each other's eyes. That we would die to our self-righteousness that we would die to our selfishness and that we would see people. You saw us, you forgave us, you've healed us, you've transformed us, but you've done that so that we can be your representatives to see and care for others. So God, I lift up Bobby Vigoda wherever he is, whatever he's doing, God. I pray that you continue to run after him and pursue him, that you would encourage his mom and dad Give them strength. All of us have Bobby Vigotas in our lives who have gone off the rails and who are hurting themselves and those people around us who have broken relationship and have left a wake of destruction behind them, God. Please continue to run after them. And may we as your people run after them and see them, if not on our own behalf, on, on somebody else's behalf. God, may we put on the mantle of Hosea and model your love and grace. And may we proclaim so loudly with our words and our deeds, deeds that there is a coming Savior, a coming Messiah, who is going to make all wrongs right. May it begin with us, Jesus, for your glory. Amen and amen.